Welcome back to Learn It From the Layman. I am still Carl Christensen, joined again by Matt and Tim. And hello. Today, Tim, I didn't ask you to speak. So, just I'm a in. rebel without a cause. Good. I might suggest we try to modify our intros to be a little bit less overtly hostile. I think <laughs> hostile is the idea. Very yeah, well. you got to give the, you got to give a hook to the audience. So, and this one's got barbs on it. Um, okay. So the uh, uh, topic of today's podcast will be translation. So, language translation specifically. We're not talking about mathematical translation functions or anything like that. We're actually talking about one language translated into another language. So. Um, Whereas in many podcasts past, I have played the layman, whereas uh, the, tonight I am going to be taking the uh, role of, um, actually, Matt and Tim both have moderate exposure to translation. Tim probably even more so than Matt at this point, given that Tim teaches a foreign language. Um but uh, I have the distinction of holding a degree in linguistics, so I think that trumps your teacher card, Tim. Uh, just a quick correction. You use linguistics and distinction in the same sentence. <laughs> I'm telling Grandpa that you said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, um, but we're going to talk about translation and uh now, generally, when we think translation these days, we I think most of our audience thinks machine translation automatically. Um, we're not talking. Well, actually, we will. I, at the end, I'm uh, going to explain a, a little bit about the technical aspects of machine translation. So if you're interested in how machine translation works, at least from kind of a high level perspective, I'll give you uh, a little bit of uh, what I know about that. Um, but we're going to uh, dive in more at the level of um, a translation theory. So uh, what translation means and how, how it works. So there are a lot of different ideas about um, translation theory. Uh, but I found a particular th – there are six theories that, I, that I, like, I think explain kind of the whole spectrum of possibilities when it comes to how languages are translated. And so I'm going to talk through them. Um, so the first one, would, uh, I'm going to call it the sociolinguistic translation theory. And that's um, the idea that uh, in translation, um, our society, our, our social context uh, defines what is uh, and what is not translatable. Um, and so each when we do a translation, so I guess let, let's start from a little more um, square one. Generally, when you're learning a language, Tim, and maybe you can pipe in here as well, translation is, is literally just very basically like I've learned the, the words that map into these words that I know in my, my native tongue. And so I'm going to be able to say, where is the bathroom? Right. And that's a translation for me. Um, and it's useful like when teaching a language. Like, yeah. And, and right. people will get on to Google Translate and they'll type a phrase in their native language and, you know, see what pops up. And it will translate it. And some of these, well, I guess you'll talk about it at the end, but they're getting better at picking up the nuance of a language. But still, to some degree, you're just translating word for word. And that doesn't always get you the meaning you're looking for. Right. Right. And so th this is kind of taking it beyond that for that's that basic step of a language learner. So when you first learn a language, you're just very pleased with the fact that you can say words, sentences, be understood. Um, but when you get to the level of, of fluency and, and also just people that are truly bilingual, translation is more nuanced than just, hey, can I say words that mean about the same thing in the other language? Well, that, that hand-waving at, at about the same thing is really what we're going for here, right? The, uh, what does that mean? How, how do we take um, you know, what I said in English and translate it into uh, this foreign language? So this sociolinguistic approach is this idea that society, so, so where I grew up, the, you know, the, the, the social context around me as an individual has shaped my language and my translation approach such that it's filtered through that social 
lens. So when I when I translate, uh, and this is I guess a lot of a lot of juice translation theories you can best understand by imagining you're translating a book, translating um, some let's say the Grapes of Wrath, a very well known English book, right? Um, lots of you know uh, metaphor symbolism, lots of things going on in that book, and now you have to take that and put it into a new language. And so the, this uh, sociolinguistic, uh, sociolinguistic approach is just one idea of understanding that, okay, because of the way uh, the society around me, the words that I choose, the metaphors I'm going to translate into are going to be shaped by that. Um, and so that's, that's one approach. Um, the communi- uh, second approach is the communicative approach, uh, the communicative translation theory. Um, and that is um, – uh, Essentially, the idea that um, what what you're translating is is meaning, not language, uh, and so you're trying to just instead of worrying about necessarily specifically the words, uh, you're you're uh, worried about the idea, the communication uh, encoded in those words. If you think about kind of our last translate our last podcast about the uh, electromagnetic spectrum and how you encode stuff language is just a way to encode an idea essentially and so this is kind of saying okay well the words are, are relevant in as much as they help me decode the um the meaning and once i get that meaning i'm going to spit it back out in the other language uh and uh, without necessarily respect to this word maps into that other word right uh, like i said like the basic language learner would do so that's um that's kind of that I- idea tim or matt you can jump in at any point if you have any insight matt and tim both speak another language um so i'll share have... one example yeah, i just so for example if i'm expressing myself in english and i say i was fit to be tied well so the the words there you know fit and tied you know it would not uh, translate literally into pretty much any other language. Um, so I, as, as you pointed out, I would look at the meaning when I was encoding that into, you know, say Spanish or Chinese or whatever, and look to express that meaning. But um, if I were to, again, pop that into just a translator, unless it was a very good translator, it wouldn't, it wouldn't give me the right meaning. Right, right. Yeah. So once again, yeah, I, I think often, yeah, I mean, we, we frame our ideas, uh, unfortunately, so frequently these days in translation about, around machine translation. And it is a useful lens to kind of look at. But I think, yeah, if the idea and we'll talk about this when we talk about machine translation later on. But this idea that there is meaning encoded in the words um, and that once you get to that meaning, you can then kind of um, turn and, and take Push, push that out into another um, language is the idea. So, but yeah. That's, Sorry, that's I probably what... am influenced by my position as a teacher where I'm having to push back against that a lot. Students, you know, just uh, pulling out the translator, and, you know, right. saying, all right, I, I did the assignment. I know Spanish. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and that's, I, I think there's some usefulness and, and as far as language learning goes to, to that, 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 feeling of accomplishment like yeah i can say that in chinese or i can say that in spanish which is good you know the point where you are a professional translator or someone that can truly understand the nuances of a language is is i once again kind of the idea we're talking about here and and we'll talk uh, later on after i go through these six uh, theories of language translation a little bit about the professional translators um job looks like and how that works but um but let's let's get through the rest of these so there's the third one is the hermeneutic approach. Um, I believe that's how you say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one will know if it's not. Uh, right. And and essentially, this is kind of a um, uh, it's slightly different than the communicative approach, but very similar in that it's uh, re- related to the idea of um, uh, com- communication, but um, kind of more of a heuristic kind of look at um, uh, the way you move uh, uh, an idea from one language into the other. It's um, 
It says a true translator should be capable of becoming a writer in order to capture what the author of the original text means to say. And so um, can you give us some clarification on heuristic? Uh, heuristic is so kind of a, uh, a guess algorithm, like a, a best a best approximation of. It, uh, yeah, it's extrapolating a reasonable conclusion based on context, more or less. It's right. kind of a pretty simple definition based on what you believe is is an accurate statement. Um, you know. You learn things, you observe things, you uh, gain an understanding of different conditions. This thing means that thing and so on and so forth. And when you do enough of that, you start to be able to build rules for yourself so that when you encounter a new circumstance that you haven't seen before, you can still extrapolate a correct course of action. Even if I haven't specifically seen this condition or this phrase that I'm supposed to translate, I'm applying heuristics appropriately, I can get the correct answer to the correct meaning. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right. My Thanks understanding is probably wrong, but whatever. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that's that's about right here. I mean, the idea is, yeah, that just that that uh, you're you're yeah trying to use your best approximation for what uh, what. You know, what maps from one language into another language. So, um, yeah, once again, the hermeneutic. I shouldn't try to say that too many times, but that is the uh, the third one we're looking at here. And like I said, we're going through six of these. I think they encapsulate well a pretty good view of what translation theory looks like, but they're not exhaustive by any means. Um, the fourth one, the linguistic um, uh, translation theory, and that's, as you, the name might imply in this one, uh, is the look at the actual structure of language when you're doing translation. So linguistics, for those of you um, who, like everyone I meet on a day-to-day -day basis, that when they find out that I have a degree in linguistics and then ask me how many languages I speak, that's not exactly what a linguist is. Uh, uh, linguistics is a study of language, not the study of any particular language. Um, and so the idea that there's a science in language, that, that syntax, semantics, morphology, phonology, um, pragmatics, all those things come into play. And so this is the translation theory that says, okay, all of that's important. Well, the, the words themselves, the structures in the sentence, the structures of the paragraph are all things that need to go into the translation. Uh, you can't just say, oh, I understand what it means and let me spit it out however I want. It's actually the structure of it matters. So th that's the linguistic approach. Uh, the fifth one is the literary translation theory. So according to the literary approach, a translation should not be considered a linguistic endeavor, but a literary one. So once again, this is more the idea of uh, uh, that there's a culture around it. So you ha kind of have to make these fine distinctions between these all these all these other ones, these translation theories that talk about um, communication or ideas. This one specifically is about uh, about culture. And how, you know, when you are translating, um, you have to bring that culture into play. Um, and what uh, what a culture, how cultures map into each other plays into the, the, the uh, way you translate. And that makes you um, then kind of a author in a new culture. So you're translating and you're authoring in that new culture the uh, same sen sentiment and idea that was originally encapsulated in the uh, source text. So an example of this type of thing in action going the wrong way is uh, for those of you who watch foreign uh, film or anime or whatever, uh, I'm sure you've seen a dub or a sub where somebody has translated the words into English. And in a high quality one, you listen to it and you get the ideas and you watch the show and you're like, yay, that girl just jumped into that giant robot suit and punted that alien into space and I understood the whole thing. Um, you can very easily find very poorly made subs or dubs where it's not, the translator takes the, the wrong approach, they don't do the literary approach, they take the linguistic approach and they translate word for word. And you get the most nonsensical phrases, things like, I have to listen to my emotions. Well, that's the actual word, maybe, that they said in, in, in whatever language, 
but that makes very little sense in English. If you switch the word emotions for feelings uh, or instincts, uh, then suddenly the phrase becomes better. I have to trust my instincts. Well, yes, that's a thing that we understand uh, and, and it resonates with us. Uh, but if you take the literal word and say, well, I have to follow my emotions, well, now you just sound all angsty. And that's not what the show or was is, is going for. That that's one specific case that I'm familiar with. Anyway, is that right? It? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the general idea. Yeah, I think once again, if you look at the language learner, which most people in the world have either tried or do, and a lot of most of the world are even bilingual in a lot of cases, the idea that one word maps into one other word exactly is incorrect, right? Like that's just not how it works, um, and so. When you yeah when you're doing a translation, you have to think okay like sure emotions as one possible transla uh, translation of that word in the source language, but it doesn't make sense given the culture or the context, and so I have to think okay well instead of using that word there's got to be a word that actually means about the same thing that makes more sense in the target language, um, and so and once again the source and the target language are the, the terminology that go with translation source language being the original language and tar target language meaning the language you're translating into so yeah that's a, a an example of yeah just the idea that if, once again if you're right if you're translating a book once again the grapes of wrath and you are trying to do it um so closely to the uh you know the american uh culture in which it was originally authored you're going to miss you know your readers are going to miss a lot of the, the nuance of it um or you you actually have to do some some work as a translator to try to pick up that nuance and, and map it into that new language and that's the uh, the literary approach is you're kind of a translation writer you're, you're an author yourself so um Okay, the last one we're going to talk about here is the semiotic approach, and that's more about signs and signification. So the general idea there is that um, uh, it, uh, interpreting or translating text is is encyclopedic, and 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 there's you have to. It's kind of the mathematical approach to it. So once again, the signs, the signification, um, the idea that that you can kind of mathematically figure it out. Um, that each context changes the, the content, uh, each word kind of influences another one. Um, and that's going to have direct relevance when we talk about machine translation here a little bit later. But um, that's, that's a, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. But yeah, just uh, you can imagine if you're doing a math problem and then all of a sudden you change those math problem, that math problem into a word problem. That's what you know. A, a semiotic a, a translator would kind of think is uh, how do you know what? How does that influence that word influence this word? And what do I need to do in order to uh, to make sure that this formula is balanced? <laughs> Those are the six translation theories I wanted to discuss and kind of seed the conversation as we're now going to uh, dig in a little bit more into what. Uh, uh, some of the nuances of being able to translate. Um, and so let's first talk about being uh, a native in a language. So, Tim, you teach Spanish, right? I think the I silence. Do. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I was just, I was mulling over the uh, <laughs> possible answers I could give. <laughs> okay. And so your, your command of Spanish is pretty good. I, I am fluent in Spanish. You wouldn't call yourself a native Spanish speaker, though. Not even close. So what, to you, is the difference between you as a, even a Spanish teacher, someone that's you know, quite fluent, uh, and a native Spanish speaker? I would, uh, so something that everyone can relate to and understand, even if they don't speak a foreign language, you, you know what a non-native speaker sounds like. Um, anytime you've uh, watched a movie with, you know, someone with a, with an exotic accent, exotic to us, you know, so um, you're listening to a non-native speaker. So if I, um, and keeping in mind that, again, that can be kind of fuzzy too. Someone with a Russian accent I know is not a native speaker of English, but someone with a Scottish accent actually is a native speaker of English. It's just an accent I'm not as familiar with maybe. But in any case, if someone, so 
uh, signs of a non-native but fluent speaker will be you don't have quite a, a native command of the language. Um, that means you're sometimes searching for words. You're not as comfortable with the phrases and and um, you're you're not able to pronounce things exactly right. Um, it, it, uh, on a biological um, from a biological perspective, the non-native speakers actually retrieving and producing language from a different part of their brain. Yeah, I was uh, going to mention that as well, right? Okay, good. Go for it. Well, no, I mean that. Yeah, there, there's a second language gets stored in a particular part of the the um, part of the brain, whereas I believe true bilingual. Uh, um, those are not clear cut, right? They're true bilingual speakers of, of two, of obviously two languages. Um, the, the language areas are mixed and, and the retrieval and, and use of that language is, is just in the same part of the brain, essentially. That's my understanding, right, Tim? I actually, yeah, I actually have some experience, uh, with the, or one experience with this really. I, I once, um, made a phone call to a person who, they, although the family lived in the United States, they were from a Spanish-speaking country, so everyone in the house, Spanish was their first language, um, and they had subsequently learned English. So I made the phone call, and and this guy picked up. He was a son in the family. Um, he had had, a, a, I think it was a brain injury or something, but um, he could no longer speak Spanish, but he could speak the language he had learned, English. And so I, I spoke to him in Spanish and he couldn't, he, he had to respond in English. And, and so then we had the rest of the conversation in English. But mm -hmm. um, so that kind of thing can happen. It's it's weird to think, but yeah, you're, and this, this all goes in for why it's valuable for a person to learn a language in the first 10, eight to 10 years of their life when, uh, sure. because that's, that's when you're, your brain will encode it into as a native language. And after now there that, are, it, oh, sorry, yes. go for it. Oh, I was going to say there are instances where, where you can, you can, uh, that's a called a critical period in linguistics. You can, you can kind of still, um, there's certain individuals at least, I don't know if there's a study that shows that it can be done across the board, but I, I know at least anecdotally certain individuals that I'd call fully native in English that, uh, whose native language was Dutch. Um, and didn't learn English until they were about 19 or 20 years old. And now you would have no, I, I had no idea. I, I didn't know. I knew the people. And then I learned later that they spoke Dutch as a native language and hadn't learned it, uh, English until later. So um, it does happen. Yeah, yeah. So, but it, it is certainly difficult. And there's called the, the critical period of language learning. And second language learning also goes along with that. But another story that is, sorry, go ahead, Tim. No, oh, and I was going to say, I, I'm curious. I, I know Dutch and English are closely related. I wonder if that's a factor, if uh, if that becomes less and less likely the farther and farther apart languages are related, you know. It's a good question. Right. And, and we can. Um, yeah, that's that is a question for another day, I believe. But um, I did want one other. <laughs> this isn't directly, once again, translation related, but very interesting when you're talking about parts of the brain and language. Um, I, I taught Dutch for a while, um, and one of my students that was, um, uh, I think I had had him for only a month, um, he went and had a surgery. And when he came out of the surgery, his nurse came in, and he spoke to her in Dutch. And she didn't understand. And he spoke quite a while, apparently, and he could say nothing else. He, the only thing that he knew at that time was Dutch. Uh, and it wore off after a half an hour or so where he could finally remember English again. Um, and this is a, a student, a language learning student of, of about a month. And so that's uh, clearly the, the uh, part of the brain that speaks English hadn't yet woken up. But uh, it was a very unique case, and surely uh, gives you, tells you that, that yeah, obviously different parts of the, the, the brain involved there. Um, okay, so once again, a target. So when I'm doing a tra professional translation, um, 
there are a couple prerequisites uh, these days. You have to be a native of the target language. Uh, you, you're not going to get a job almost in any reputable translation business or company or trans, any reputable translation freelance job if you're not a, uh, a, a target language native. That means if I'm translating, I have to translate into English. I can't say, well, I know Dutch really well, so let me translate it into Dutch. That's not uh, how translation uh, the translation industry works is you must uh, be native in the um, – the target language. And that's uh, really relevant, um, which is why we were just talking about what a native means. So uh, once you are, in, uh, if I'm an English language speaker, but I've lived for 10 years in the Netherlands or something like that, um, am, I, am I still as native as I was in English? I mean, to some degree, the argument would be yes, but given those translation theories that we just discussed, you could uh, see how, okay, contextually, socially, all of a sudden, I might not have the same context of, of what uh, what English has done in the last 10 years. Um, certain words or phrases that have either cropped up or changed their meanings uh, might not have the same meaning to me anymore if I've only lived in one locale. Um, so if I claim that I'm an Engl uh, English language speaker of the U.S. locale um, natively, and but I've lived somewhere else for a decade or more, am I really as much of a native? Uh, so these are all open questions, things that the translation business industry uh, doesn't really worry about too much, but it does come up occasionally. Um, so something to think about if you're if you're interested in learning a language or doing translation, you have to be familiar with the culture. So you have to at least live in the uh, the source language locale also for a while, uh, arguably. So if you are translating, if I'm translating Dutch to English and I never lived in a Dutch speaking country, I'm going to miss the nuance on that side as well. Um, and so all of these come into play in doing a translation is what, uh, what nuance, what language, uh, features am I missing, uh, as a translator that might skew the, uh, the output of my translation, uh, that then would have a different, uh, a different value, a different meaning to the people that are, that are reading it. So, um, all right, let's move on. So translation of words or ideas. And Matt, you touched on this earlier, but when you learned a uh, second language, uh, there was probably some point at which you went from translating words directly uh, into Romanian to actually being able to speak ideas in Romanian, right? What was that like? Yeah, so that was actually one of the key turning points uh, when I did manage to learn uh, Romanian. I, I speak fluent Romanian. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit of an epiphany when I realized that what I was trying to do was communicate an idea. Um, I, I'd taken some high school uh, language courses, but unfortunately I'd approached it from the standpoint of I'm just going to learn vocabulary. And, and I was only tangentially aware that there were other language considerations than learning words. But when that finally clicked, unfortunately, it clicked for fairly early, you know, obvious realization, um, it enabled me to to take the right approach to learning Romanian. And I think that sped it up quite a bit. Sure. Yeah, I, that 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 bridge of, of going from words to ideas is incredibly key, I believe, and very important in, in translation as well. Um, and. It's interesting, as we're going to talk here in just a minute about translation uh, in the real world and what happens in uh, doing translation, but they both play a part. I mean, obviously, in order to, to come up with ideas in another language, you've got to have a good uh, you know, word bank from which to draw. But um, but yeah, it is, it's a different way of thinking about language um, than as opposed to just uh, well, I, I, you know, this, uh, you know, this language that I speak is the language and now I'm going to map it into this other language that I'm learning as opposed to just, okay, I've got this idea and I'm going to use this other language to, you know, to describe it. So if you think about translation of words versus ideas, um, you, you know that in, in if you've ever learned another language or if you speak another language, objects have very – they map across languages. Almost always there's a word that means 
you know, chair in English, and there's a word that means chair in Chinese. There's a word that means desk in, in all these languages. And, and so generally objects have very concrete mappings for translation. Um, function words like the and a, uh, not as clear cut, but generally they're, they're pretty rigid as far as, okay, the, you know, in, in Chinese there are no determiners or things like that. But, you know, when the and is is pretty clearly mapped over into Chinese in a, in a word or two and structure, you can map structures into structures into other languages, usually pretty well. When you start getting this whole idea of I need to be able to uh, use uh, a language in order uh, to you know, come up with idea uniquely is when when you're doing, using expressive or abstract concepts. Right. All of a sudden now your vocabulary and just saying, OK, I know how to translate this word into that word all of a sudden doesn't have the same usefulness because um, that uh, that sucks or that's cool or uh, those types of things. Sure, they maybe in your language learning class, they taught you, you know, in, in uh, Dutch, look, right? It's look. Um, but does it have the same exact meaning as cool? Yeah, maybe not, depending on how it's used contextually, socially, because the word cool doesn't really have a, a direct meaning, right? Other than what's culturally defined, not like a chair, right? Culturally doesn't really, we don't define chairs. It's just, that's the object. Um, and so that's that's why these uh, this idea of being able to use uh, the language to come up with a unique sentence in that language uh, as independent of the source language is really uh, important because all of a sudden then you have to do that in translation if you're doing okay I've just read about how something is very um, cool or unique or awesome or some something descriptive more or more abstract um something relevant to cultures and and ideas and feelings that that in other languages might not have the same exact meaning if i just go word to word to word to word um and so uh that's really important to understand uh, as you're starting starting to uh do some translation work uh, so let's talk a little bit about what the professional translator does um so let's, I guess, first let me t walk you through the workflow. Um, and that is, uh, and these days, generally, you could talk about translation uh, of, of literary works, and that does happen, obviously. Your your uh, Harry Potter, you know, your Hunger Games, I'm, all of those large uh, market books do get translated, and then some of the smaller market books, but generally tra literary translation is a very small part of translation work. Generally, what you're talking about is is documentation, marketing, websites. Um, that's the type of translation we're doing, right? So, some of that's going to have marketing, for example, is going to have a lot of expressive language, abstract concepts, things determined by society and culture that you're going to have to be very aware of. Documentation, maybe less so. A lot of that's going to be very object driven. Um, but as a translator, I'm going to get the document, right? I'm going to get uh, some. Word file or something, and, and there are translation tools. I, and we're not going to go into all that software stuff, but um, that you can use. But you're going to get that document, and now you're going to say, okay, I need to spit out another document that is the same meaning-wise, if that's what's depending on your translation theory. Um, but I need to go. Uh, you know, at what point? Uh, how do I break this down? And 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 in translation uh, workflows these days is it. It's, our, it's been determined. The way that it's broken down is in sentences. Um, with the exception, once again, outlier being literary translation. Often literary translators will do things differently. They'll translate a paragraph at a time or some, a page. You know, they'll, they'll, it's very fluid as to how literary translators will work, maybe sometimes even across a page and just figure out how what's going to work. Because they're kind of, once again, authoring a new language. Um, that sometimes will happen with marketing, but even in marketing translations, you generally work at the segment level. And that's what it's called, it's a segment, and that's usually the level of a sentence. Um, and so I'm going to go sentence by sentence. I'm going to come up with a translation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that uh, down and my new document, and that's how I'm going to work through the translation. 
Um, but there are things that will help me as a professional translator. Um, and that's one thing that we call terminology. And all of us are familiar with like jargon and terminology as it, as it applies to maybe our particular field of interest. But um, terminology in uh, in translation literally means, OK, so I've got uh, setting up word mappings like, OK, uh, for the word computer aided translation software, I'm going to use you know, that, the, this set of five words in Dutch. And that's what I'm going to do all the time. So I make sure that I stay consistent as opposed to if I come across that phrase again later, maybe I'll translate it differently. Well, then all of a sudden you've got a lot of confusion. Your translation is not exactly as clear. So you set up terminology. Uh, there's something that in the translation world is called translation memory. And that's literally just, okay, if I translated this sentence before and now I come across that exact sentence again later, I'm going to just translate it the same. I'm not going to say, well, let me think about how I should translate it this time. And maybe in literary translation you do, but in the normal translation world, you don't, you know, you just spit out the same translation. Um, and then there's this question of locale. And this one's really interesting. I think uh, everyone here could probably uh, come um, back in the conversation here as far as, okay, like it, it, if you read Harry Potter recently, I brought up Harry Potter there are there's international there's localization where we you take a trend uh, a text and, and make it local to a different area um, and there's internationalization where you take a text and you try to make it not specific to any area but so in harry potter if you've read it there are a few british terms <laughs> that uh, when i was reading with my children recently i a few of them i just didn't even know what they meant um and but for example, one one I did actually know what this one snogging, for example, uh, contextually, you can figure that one out. Uh, but that's a word that 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 I, one, Carl, you didn't know what it meant because you'd never done it. Huh? <laughs> I have married and have five children. So um, <laughs> but um, but locale specific translation or localization or internationalization are really interesting. So um that's the idea of uh, once again Harry Potter, and I don't know why they didn't they did it for the title, but not the rest of the book. But in in the UK, right, it's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and in the United States, it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, anyone else have any uh, examples of of those types of things where you like the maybe a, you've seen a different version of something that is relevant that that is used for you know, either British English or Australian English, playing to panting to our, our Australian audience, um, that is that is something that wouldn't make a lot of sense in uh, in, in American English. I know several terms. Like in American English, we call it a swimsuit. In British English, it's a bathing costume. There you go. Um, a diaper is a nappy in the UK. Right. Um, bunch of stuff like that. Uh, cracker and biscuit mean different things there than they do here. Sure, sure. That's a good example as well. Last uh, summer, I got to the opportunity to spend a significant amount of time working with um, well, people from a number of different countries, uh, France, Spain, uh, as well as Australia, uh, the UK, Canada, and other places and we ran into these things all the time uh they'd be talking about a thing and we'd use a term or they would use a term and we'd all have to pause and try to figure out what exactly the other one meant um we uh one of the ones that came up was the word bog and we were using it as an acronym uh b-o-g just to mean a certain thing and and that was well understood with the group that we were working in it was a a defined acronym for that organization. Uh, apparently in Australia, that is uh, one of those words for excrement. So you know, <laughs> our Australian would just giggle every time that word was used. Um, and the poor Brits <laughs> would just go all kinds of crazy with, with bizarre terms that they made up. And I'd have to remind them that, hey, this is a, uh, we, we speak the, the president's English here in this organization. <laughs> and then they'd get all annoyed and it was but, <laughs> Good, good examples. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, so I, I've mentioned this before. We have an Australian friend that we see a lot, and, and she's got two children um, that are over here frequently at our home. And this is 
years ago when we first started getting to know them and uh, their daughter, who at the time was, I don't know, six, sitting and, and eating something at our table. And, and she turns to me and she's got a bit of an accent. She was born in Australia. Um, anyway, and she turns to me and says, you know, something about where, where's the bin? And I was like, what? What? She's like, where's the bin? And I was like, I don't think we have one of those. I what are you talking about? And she says, oh, there. And she walks over and throws something away because the word bin apparently is trash bin. And they just say bin. So, um, uh, yeah, for example, um, that's uh, those are instances of, yeah, of, of localized language. And so you can imagine in translation, um, you got to watch out for those. Uh, and this is a good time to also differentiate, once again, in the industry. Um, translation is different than inter interpretation. So translation is the translating of text. So actual Word documents, um, just just text, written text. And inter interpreting is, is spoken language. And that's very clearly defined inside the industry. If you're saying translation, you're not talking about, oh, I'm translating. He's talking and I'm telling them what to do. I'm translating. That's interpreting. Translating is, is source text to target text. And that's translation. And so uh, you can imagine, especially in translation, in, in documents cases, um, it's very important that you work out localization issues early on because like like matt mentioned you know if you're talking through it you can figure that out right in in an in interpreting scenario if you're using a, a different word a different phrase you can all kind of figure out oh that's that's not what that means and talk through it well in a translation if i'm doing a, a manual on how to use a heart you know uh, operation machine and there's a there's somehow a localized word in there now i've got a dead person on my hand because I wouldn't localize that correctly, because now it turns out that in uh, in Australia, Australia or in the UK, the the word for button is something else. And so when I said use push that the red button, they anyway something along those lines. You can um, you can imagine. So localization, internationalization, very important concepts in um, in translation practice. And uh, so those are things that the uh, translator has to deal with on a day to day basis. Um, I, I so, think my favorite one from the Queen's English to the President's English, as Matt so eloquently said, is jumper. So in the Queen's English, a jumper is like a sweatshirt or a jacket, and here in the President's English, it's a like a summer dress. So, right, yeah, you know, yeah, like really, yeah. like first couple times I heard that, I'm like, what? What do you mean your jumper? Like. <laughs> talking to a guy you have to put on your jumper like i was totally confused and i i eventually figured it out but you know right yeah when well when i was reading to my the harry potter and my kids and i i can only think of that one instance but there are a number of times where i'd be reading along and contextually i can figure out what a particular britishism meant and so that but then i'd have to turn to my kids who aren't familiar with that process and be like well it just said this but you're thinking of this it actually means this uh, and so, in you know th those types of things. Once again, when you're doing a, a literary work, maybe not as big of a deal. If you're doing a uh, technical document that's going to be used um, across, you know, to, for example, to launch a rocket, these things are very important that we uh, iron out exactly what terms mean, as opposed to just well, it's about that's about the same. Um, yeah. And, so and I imagine as you got progressed through the series, you had to explain less to your children. The names sure. that popped up, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah. You get you get more familiar with it for sure. Um. But yeah. So that's uh that's a little bit. Uh, let me see if any other steps I missed with the translation um workflow for a professional translator. So, at professional translators generally get paid at the per le word level of the source language, not the number of words that they create in the target language, because that would create a, a pretty bad incentive for them to go become a very wordy. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they <laughs> they get paid per word. And so uh, that's that's how the the payment structure goes. But um, it's also very important in a workflow of a professional translator to understand the uh, purpose, the audience, the function of the text. So usually in translation, when you get handed a document, it's not just 
here, here translate this. It's this is our marketing content. We're going to be using this for our new software release, um, you know, in in China or you know or, or in Brazil or whatever. And as opposed to just translate this into Portuguese. Well, okay, Portugal Portuguese or Brazilian Portuguese. Uh, or if I'm doing the Chinese, am I doing in the in the, for Taiwan? Am I doing for Hong Kong? Am I doing it for mainland China? Even in mainland China, there's different variants. So um, those types of things all have to be cleared up, and those are usually done before you start a tra- uh, hopefully before you, you start a translation. So um, let's talk a little bit now about um, about machine translation. So I did tease that a little bit earlier on. Um, I was just so, say the guy that translated War and Peace got a nice check. <laughs> right, and you're looking for longer text. We we really want wordy people in the translation industry. You want, uh, uh, right? But um, okay, so machine translation. This is what everyone. When you think translation these days, it's literally synonymous with machine translation. I tell people that I do some translation work uh, for my job. They think, oh, you know, like Google, like. Uh, no, actually, that's not what I mean. Um, but machine translation is ubiquitous now, and it's also getting a lot better, like Tim talked about already. Um, so 20 years ago, it was a joke. I mean, 40 years ago, it was it was almost, I mean, entirely worthless. It was literally just the idea of this word goes into this word, and we're going to try to – so it didn't – it about I think it was about the 70s that they started actually putting the, this idea that maybe we can use computers back in the 70s. You can imagine what those computers looked like to work to do translation. And both because they were hamstrung with technology and because translation theory, as far as machine translation goes, wasn't where it needed to be. The efforts essentially face flopped and machine translation got a horrible name and essentially died for like 10 or 15 years where very few people were looking into it because they just figured it wasn't a thing that you could do. Machine translation was not a thing. And it wasn't really until the late 90s when people started thinking again and actually putting a lot of time and effort into doing translation uh, on the computer. Um and then you start getting uh, everyone obviously familiar with Google Translate. Um, I think his name's Franz Och, uh, who was the I think he still is the lead tra- uh, scientist, the lead computer scientist, uh, translation uh, guru extraordinaire that does the tr- Google Translate algorithms, and uh, and they did some amazing things. And that's when all of a sudden people started thinking, oh yeah, maybe this is useful. But still, for professional translators, it was a laugh. Right. Because every every other sentence or every sentence, there'd be a word or two that just blew up the whole thing and either made it mean the exact opposite or said, instead of I need you to help me write this down, it was I need you to go poop for me, you know, something where it was just silly. And uh, and then so it was just a laugh and, and you translate it into that language and everyone would just go giggle. Right. Because that's that what was machine translation was for. And it got better. It got incrementally better again and again and again throughout the 2000s and early 2010, 2012. We're starting to see um, significant improvement in algorithms, different ways that they're approaching it. They're using statistics and um, word models and link, uh, all these things. And But all of a sudden, about uh, four years ago, three or four years ago, there was a quantum leap in machine translation. Um and the algorithm that they used to do machine translation, all of a sudden, they, they, they're using – it's called um, uh, deep neural nets. And anyway, we won't talk too much about that. But the idea is all of a sudden, the models that they were using went from just taking words and how the words need to go around each other and how this word moves to this place in that sentence. And that's how they would teach the computer how, how to – you know, create a translation. Now, all of a sudden, in a deep neural net, um, you actually can take, okay, say, this is the word I'm trying to translate. This is the context of the whole source sentence. That whole thing now matters to the computer. That whole, the rest of the context in that sentence matters. It takes it all into consideration, and it takes into consideration all the words that you've already translated into in that sentence. So it's taking all of this stuff into consideration, weighing it, uh, and spitting out the next state. That, which is the next word. Um, and so that's uh, 
all of a sudden you you've really made a big leap as opposed to just okay this word or these couple words map into these other language uh, other words in this other language and you because now all of a sudden you're really kind of getting closer to this idea of meaning um, because if you're taking the whole sentence into consideration like the computer is sure the computer doesn't know what the words mean in in the way that we think about it but if it's using all the words to decide what the next word in the translation is it in 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 a sense is is uh using some type of you know machine meaning um and and so there's something called the vo the uh i think it's pronounced voqua uh triangle and uh in machine translation, that that's it kind of gives you an idea of how things are translated. There's different levels of the Bokwa triangle. That uh, so there's um, I you, uh, the first couple levels of the Bokwa triangle are um, you am uh, taking the source language directly over. So you can imagine on the left side of the Bokwa triangle, there's the source words, and on the right side of the Bokwa triangle at the base, so you can imagine a pyramid. Left side. There is word structure, so this is in the in the original language. On the right side, there's word word structure in the target language, or, or um, and so then, uh, or, or word source text into target text, uh, and then as you go up the triangle, you're going from words to syntax, which is the structure of the words, to semantics, which is the meaning of the words, all the way to the top at the peak of the pyramid. There's something called the interlingua, and that's uh, the idea that. Conceptually, inside of us, as we translate as humans, we've gone all the way to meaning, right? It's not like we've stopped and understood what each word means, but we don't actually understand what the sentence means when we translate. We, we know what the whole sentence means when we translate. And that's what the, when you go all the way up to what's called an interlingua, so it's something, a, a meaning representation, um, and then you can map it all the way back down the other side of the pyramid back into a semantic structure, which means a meaning structure in the target language, a syntactic structure, meaning word order in the target language, and, and finally to the actual words themselves in the target language. And so uh, when this came down for m machine translation, this was very relevant to kind of show where the computer was mapping over. So originally it was word to word, right? It's just directly across the base of the pyramid. And that was a joke, right? But then if you could go f up the, the, uh, the Vauquois triangle and hit syntactic structure and say, okay, but the computer is now looking at the word order and, and, and then using that to generate words. Um, it's going further up this idea of further up towards meaning. Uh, well, nowadays it goes all the way up almost interlingua, right? Not, not quite. And then it generates back down at the word um, structure level. Um, anyway, so that was a quantum leap we took in machine translation a couple of years ago, and uh, it really is significantly better to the point where where professional translators use machine translation in their translation work pretty much all the time. Um, maybe not for every single sentence, but very, very frequently professional translators will actually first machine translate either a sentence or even the whole document in some cases and then go through and what they call is post edit. They'll go through and edit translation the, tra the machine translation find the instances where it didn't get it right where it maybe messed something up and and fix it but that is often the work of a, of a translator today but machine translation um is different uh still than than a human translation in a lot of a lot of ways um obviously it doesn't take culture into uh, consideration um those types of things as we as language changes uh, the translator is going to become more aware of that than the uh, the algorithm that has already been trained on particular sets of text that it got um, beforehand. So um, machine translation, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but um, that's the general idea. Uh, and, and I think it's also really important to note that uh, it's going to continue to get better, but... Um, I predict, as, as someone that's very often in the translation space, it's never going to supplant uh, human translators. And here's why. Um, it's uh, So let's say Tim asks uh, – I asked Tim to translate something into Spanish for me. Uh, and I, I tell him, okay, I'm going to use this to you know, give a, uh, a speech in front of – you know, a, a group of, uh, you know, Spanish speaking um, people 
and you know, I need this to be perfect. And so Tim goes, does a translation, and brings it back. I go and speak. If Tim did a bad job, I can go back and I can yell at Tim. Uh, Tim is now liable. I paid him. Uh, Tim now is on the hook, right? If I go and say, okay, machine translation is pretty good. I'm going to machine translation, uh, machine translate this speech, and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, use that. Well, let's say it's almost perfect, but there's a couple words that are wrong. Well, too bad, right? Uh, there is no recourse, and and it's a complete black box to me, right? Both from Tim, but also especially from the machine translation, I have no feedback. I've got a no feedback loop. I can't say anything about it. I'm looking at a different language, and I don't know what it means. And so that's why I believe for professional translators, to some extent, will always be relevant, um, is the idea that uh, the machine translation is a black box, uh, it just as the translation process is a black box. So you need the human in the loop in order to give yourself the, sh the, the comfort and also the legal uh, recourse uh, essentially to be able to say, okay, I've had this read through. I know that if there are errors, they are minor as opposed to sometimes, for example, machine translation will unfortunately miss a uh, negation. That's still, I think, a relatively frequent problem as far as level of, okay, once a page. Well, missing a negation once a page is a bit of a problem uh, in a technical document, for example. So, um, and that's not the type of error a professional translator usually makes. Professional translators with typos, maybe um, a, a lighted word somewhere, but not a negation because they are taking the meaning into account once again. But um, that's my that's my take on machine translation. Um, uh, Tim, or do you have any? Uh, you said you in your your teaching. Uh, how often do you use machine translation? Do you let your your students use machine translation? Do you find it useful? So I've been uh, I've been on a journey, and uh, let me tell you about my journey. No, just kidding. I'm not going to tell you, but I'll just say, uh, as a teacher, uh, it's really nettling at first because what you have is you have students who will use the you know the machine to circumvent the labor of learning. You know, so it, it, learning a language, you have to just spend so much time with the language, and and as teachers, we assign students tasks to practice and spend that time and so when it when a student uh just has the you know the, the translator you know put in the words for them then they're not doing the the hard work of learning the language so so that's my my beef with you know using it, it in in real life you know outside of oh i'm trying to learn a language if i'm just trying to complete a task i think those translators are very cool and very useful. And as you say, they're getting better. Um, and I've, I've heard of, you know, apps and programs that you can use to kind of on the spot, you know, translate, you know, what a nice thing to have available if you're traveling in a, in a foreign country where you're unfamiliar with the language and culture. Um, so I think they're very useful as a tool. And part of it depends on your end goal. If my end goal is to travel in Thailand, I don't have the time or resources to learn the Thai language then those kinds of things are, are wonderful and great. If I'm trying to learn the language, then I need to recognize that if I over rely on a tool, it's going to weaken my, my practice and experience. So you just have to kind of evaluate your, your goals and your purpose. Yeah, I agree. I think it is, it is a tool. And, it, and so if people are, are interested in what, uh, you know, what machine translation can be useful for like you said a communication it's, it's very good these days it's not perfect but uh but it's very good in those cases if you're just trying to get a point across like you said if you're not have time to do to actually learn the language which i think often gives people a very you know sense of accomplishment but the machine translation will often function just as well as your uh pithy uh, attempts to uh, uh say where's the bathroom in chinese might as well just uh, do the machine translation, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's Matt or Cameron, Pazza, right? <laughs> In Chinese. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, no, I was going to say, don't be a tool by using the tool. I was trying to come up with a pithy response <laughs> there. there. <laughs> like right. it, like it. <laughs> but, and but yeah, really, also, we can't. Um, just that that could throw a machine translator. Versus a real translator. Oh, uh, what could? 
What's going to throw Don't someone? be a tool by using the tool. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, word, word plays or idioms or, or sarcasm, those are types of things that are still sometimes problematic for machine translation. But they're, once again, getting better. Hey, I'm thinking a modern John Henry story, you know? Uh, you know, born, born with, the, instead of born with a hammer in your hand, you know, he was born with a dictionary in his hand. And, you know, and then he goes up against the machine translator and you got to translate this, you know, hefty tome, you know. Huh? Right. No. Not interesting. Linguist John Henry. Uh, nope. <laughs> someday it's going to happen. And you'll be like, Tim knew it. He saw it coming. But on a, on a serious note, I, I think that using these tools, it does something for us that hasn't been available um, to past generations. The wealth of information that we have can do more than just allow us to look up, you know, fun facts or interesting information on Google. Um, now we can use these things and to travel the world, um, either from our computer or in person, in a way that people in the past weren't able to. You know, um, kids my age growing up, if you had an interest in Japanese culture or or German culture or whatever, you didn't have as much access as you do now. So I I hope that as these tools become available, people take advantage of them and and use them to you know expand their their world. Yeah, I agree. I do also think that as you're learning a language, hopefully you get to the point where Matt already mentioned the idea of being able to say uh, an idea in a different language. I think that's really useful. Um, I, and as a linguist, of course, I would say that. But um, there, you know, there is something to be said for learning a culture such that uh, and a language such that you can all of a sudden use uh, that to, to describe the ideas in your head. It, it also helps you form the ideas in your head and it gives you a broader perspective, I think, of the, of the human picture. So um, uh, I, I encourage people, even if you're not looking to be a professional translator, spend some time trying to translate. If you know, if you have another a language that you know or are trying to you know, bust out some, some book, whatever it is, and try to translate because that kind of gives you this idea of uh, so what some of the challenges might be. One other thing before we sign off here, and that's um, translation ease. And this is this kind of uh, interesting little uh, little fact. Um, so there are artifacts, let's call them, that um, as, as a translator works through a document, they subconsciously leave behind in, in their translation. Um, and uh, I, the, essentially what it, is, it comes down to is when I'm translating from English into French, let's say, uh, a, a professional translator will use certain words or certain types of words more than they would if they were authoring originally in French um, just because they're doing a translation. And that's called translation ease. And it, it actually uh, can be found in all translation, all translations from any source source into any target language. Um, that that artifact, those artifacts remain, and and you can te you can find them. And uh, what's really interesting is in the last ten years, people have taught uh, computers how to recognize these artifacts, and you can actually um, th there are models out there that you can say okay, uh, hand like a document to a model and say, hey, is th was this originally written in English? And it, with a more than 90% accuracy, uh, can say whether or not a particular document was originally written in that language based on knowing what the translation ease is of a, of, of a, of a language. So um, it is really interesting for me as a linguist, this idea that, you know, subconsciously as we're doing translation work, there are things parts of the language that just get used disproportionately and uh, and, the, and they remain in that translation and and that's i think often when we think about um if non-native language speakers of course there are going to be this or their accent but accent aside you can often tell whether or not someone was is an, a native english speaker just by the phrases that they choose and not that they're doing anything wrong, but that it's somehow just slightly different. And that slightly different thing can now be encoded into a model in a computer. And uh, if you hand them a document, they can say, oh yeah, that actually was not originally English. And 90, I think it's like 93% of the time, it's right. 
So. Can you give us any examples of translationese? Um, off the top of my head, no. I've read articles about this a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, it's um, particular words in French. It's often function words. Um, I, from what I remember, like prepositions. So when you go – and it depends on the language pair. So from English to French um, versus English to German, the translation ease indicators are different, but they exist in both. Um, and it just has to do with the syntactic structures and and the semantics of a particular language being different enough. And the translator is doing a good job, but they're being too true generally to the source text. And so they're not authoring originally in that language and essentially a computer can tell. And that's that's the, the idea. Interesting. Yeah. So for what that's worth, it is interesting and uh, um, maybe useful at some point if you ever become a spy. I don't know. Um, final thoughts, Tim, Matt, Cameron, any uh, final translation thoughts? I thought that podcast was informative and useful. Yes. All right. Well, in, in the in the spirit of translation, we should probably all sign off in our uh, second language. So for Cameron, that's going to be Australian <laughs> because I just decided, well, I <laughs> guess, <laughs> you know, just so that we can humor our base. So, Cameron, how would you say goodbye in Australian? Good day, mate. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Matt, how do you say goodbye in Romanian? Say la revedere, which means to the seeing again. Nice. Uh, Tim, I think most people, well, that's probably not fair. We have worldwide listeners. Okay, tell us goodbye in Spanish. No, Tim, Tim, <laughs> you, just, you just said I eat your bathroom and... Chinese. What? Oh, shoot. Context. Uh, context. Ah, okay. Um, well, let's just go with adios or hasta luego, which means nice. adios means goodbye and hasta luego means until later or see you later. Nice. And in Dutch, tot ziens, tot kijk. Um, yep. And uh, good luck to learning to, uh, to translate and uh, we will see you back again next podcast. I'll be here to save you.